millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi there! Welcome to History in Retrograde. This is the podcast where we use the ancient art of astrology to help us better understand the past. I'm your co-host, Chandler O'Quinn, and joining me live via satellite is my mom! Hi, Mom! Hi, Chandler! How are you? I'm doing very well. Are you ready to begin another grand experiment? I am. I'm absolutely ready. Let's go! All right, let's give it a whirl! Okay, and I just wanted to say hello to all the listeners, and thank you so much for sharing the show. It is a very stormy day here today on the coast, so we might hear thunder. Uh, yes, it's a little stormy where I am, too, so uh, that is uh, always possible. Uh, although the horizons right now might be a little cloudy, uh, we hope that uh, wherever you are in this uh, great country or all over this wonderful world of ours, uh, whenever you're listening to this, that uh, you are safe and sound and uh, feeling positive vibes. And uh, yes, we just want to uh, thank all of you so much for uh, listening, especially all of our repeat listeners um, all over the world. It is so uh, great to see all of you and hear from you every once in a while. And for those of you, this is your uh, first History in Retrograde. Welcome. Uh, the way that we do things around here is that in a moment, I will give the data necessary to create an astrological birth chart for a random historical figure uh, to my mother. Uh, now, you, the listening audience, already know who this historical figure is. It is in the title of today's podcast, and I, of course, know because I selected this person. But Mom has no idea who this person could be. Uh, so, in a moment, I will give her the data necessary to create the astrological birth chart. That is the birth date, time, and location for this mystery history guest. She will then input that data into the bat computer, and out will come the astrological birth chart, where all of the planets, moons, and stars were at the moment that person was born. Uh, she will do her best to give us a blind reading of that person's chart, uh, telling us what she can about the person's uh, personality traits, characteristics, motivations, fortunes of this person. 
Uh, I will ask a few discussion questions, and then uh, we'll reveal to her who our mystery history guest is. Uh, I will then give a little background about the person, and then uh, we'll come together at the end of the show to discuss how accurate the chart was at predicting what that person would do. Uh, so without any further ado, let's begin. All right. Uh, this is a male. All right. Uh, born on the 1st of January. Well. 1804. All right. And, and I, I unfortunately was not able to find a time for this one. Okay, so I'm going to try something a little bit different. I'm going to go ahead and put unknown this time. And it's going to give us a first house cusp, an equal house cusp, starting with uh, first house in Aries. Just for interest sake, is that all right with you, Chandler? Sure, sure. All right. And where in the world? Uh, the United States. All right. And the town? Marion, Georgia. All right. All right. See the difference here, Chandler, where mm -hmm. we have all equal houses? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm just going to see how this works out since we don't have a um, birth time. Uh, you have choices when you don't have a birth time. You can either do noon or you can do midnight. And I'm just assuming that most babies are born between midnight and noon. But I could be wrong. But I just thought it'd be fun to try it this way since we don't have a birth time. All right. So this person has... Sun at 10 degrees Capricorn, Moon at 4 degrees Virgo, Mercury at 18 degrees Capricorn, Venus at 29 degrees Capricorn, Mars at 3 degrees Capricorn, Jupiter at 2 degrees Scorpio, Saturn at 3 degrees Libra, Uranus at 16 degrees Libra, Neptune at 25 degrees Scorpio, Pluto at 6 degrees Pisces, North Node in Aquarius at 14 degrees, and Chiron at 4 degrees Capricorn. So we have a lot of Capricorn planets here. All right. So we have Sun, Trine Moon, okay, and uh, Mercury and Venus, all Trine Moon, Mars Trine Moon by degree. And then Chiron, trining moon exactly by degree. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so if we look at this chart, the way it's been uh, laid out with Aries on the first house and all the houses equal, on this chart, the moon uh, falls in the sixth house. And um, Saturn, Uranus, Saturn and Uranus fall in the seventh house. Jupiter and Neptune in the eighth house. Mars, Chiron, Sun, Mercury, and Venus all in the tenth house with North Node in the 11th house and Pluto in the 12th house per this chart. So let's begin with uh, 
North Node in Aquarius, okay? Because um, we don't know for sure where these planets do fall. But North Node in Aquarius is going to give this person uh, more, it should give this person either a humanitarian, technological, futuristic, inventive, scientific direction. Okay. This person should be of a mind that is unique and um, uh, an interest in futuristic things could even be an interest in supernatural things, but supernatural things on the level of like alien technology, uh, other worlds, uh, that kind of supernatural. Um, this person should be very business oriented. They have so much Capricorn in their chart that I would find it interesting if this person was not very interested in business uh, running a business working in a business um this kind of thing they have saturn and uranus i thought there was one more saturn and uranus and libra squaring all that capricorn so there could be issues to overcome in this business situation and having neptune in scorpio gives them kind of an interest in the supernatural or occult or death and rebirth um could make them psychic but should definitely have some interest in that supernatural area uh Pluto and Pisces is going to give them also that kind of supernatural, maybe uh, creative um, death and rebirth, uh, interest in um, watery, uh, um, Maybe oh, I, don't, I, I, I need to think about that because that Pluto and Pisces here, it's showing that it's in, this, in the 12th house, but we don't know for sure. If it were in the 12th house, then this person could be very powerfully uh, creative, maybe even um, uh, have some business with supernatural things. Am I anywhere in the ballpark? That he uh, did dabble in business. Um, I, I haven't really seen anything about a connection to uh, the supernatural or the occult of uh, any kind, but um, that just could be that's not what we've gotten out of his life after all these years. But um, I think the business-oriented, that was uh, one aspect of his life. Uh, I think... Um, uh yeah issues to overcome uh powerfully creative possibly um so there there are a few things there that make sense 
Okay, so uh, I think also with Chiron uh, trining his moon, Chiron at four degrees Capricorn and moon at four degrees Virgo, there's something involving his mother, could be a woman or mother, something that he would have to overcome, uh, some um, wound that has to do with women or mother in uh, early life that perhaps he would have had to overcome and then help others with or have some interest in helping people with this. Um, since I cannot gauge where the planets fall, I can reiterate that having Sun conjunct Mercury conjunct Venus and conjunct Mars all in Capricorn with Chiron in Capricorn really should have made this person very business oriented. Now, if they were not, if they were the dark side of Capricorn, which is more manipulative, um, could have been prone to alcoholism or drug abuse, uh, these kind of things, if it's more the dark side of Capricorn. Do you have any questions? Um, so what sort of uh, profession do you see this uh, person going into? Well, uh, I would imagine that this person had their own business. Most people with this many planets in Capricorn uh, would like to have their own business or be an executive in a business or be in charge. So, um, you say be in charge, you say, uh, uh, you know, leading, um, the business, there's a lot of different businesses out there. Yes. Um, so, um, it, can you get any sense, uh, like, is it like a shop? Is it, uh, what, what, what sort of business might he be attracted to? Well, I mean, he has Mars and Capricorn, conjunct Venus and Capricorn. Uh, by sign, not by degree, because his Venus is at 29 degrees Capricorn and his Mars is at 3 degrees Capricorn. So in that situation, uh, I would assume that this person would prefer to be in some sort of corporate or uh, industrial uh, business, you know, like hmm. shipbuilding or oil or uh, cattle or, you know, something that's bigger not just average. Um, sometimes uh, people with this many planets in Capricorn, but with North Node in Aquarius. So we have North Node in Aquarius, which uh, could make this person more of an inventor or a researcher or uh, even an explorer. Anything that has to do with uh, more information, getting more information, uh, more technology. Um, humanitarianism is an aspect of North Node in, in, in Aquarius. But with this many planets in Capricorn, I would think that this person would be more likely to be a creative businessman, more mm. technologically advanced as a businessman. How would you describe this person's personality? Well, they have Mercury in Capricorn, 
and we don't know what they have rising. So um, people who have a lot of Capricorn planets tend to not be very outspoken. They can be charming, but they're not hugely gregarious like a Leo or an Aries. You might not necessarily know that this person has entered the room, although this person will know everything about the room that they entered, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, they are not necessarily someone to jump out in the middle of the crowd and, and draw attention to themselves. They are more uh, subdued and uh, inquisitive. They will be gauging the room, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Is this an arrogant person? Could be. This person could be arrogant. It just depends on what side of Capricorn we're dealing with. Uh, this person could be very self-centered. Uh, would you think this person is gullible? I would not think this person is gullible. I would think this person could play gullible to acquire whatever it is they're trying to get. But I would not think that this person is naturally gullible. How would this person do in a military setting? I believe that this person would be in charge. And I believe that this person would be in charge in a way that deals strictly with the facts. Not a person that would run off the rails. Someone who really has considered all of the aspects and could possibly be very dangerous as far as a military leader. Because this person is going to think in a different way because they have North Node in Aquarius, which puts them in a different level. It puts them in an area where they're going to see things differently than the average person does, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, would this person, um, how would they uh, deal with... Uh, uh, being in a chaotic environment. If this person were in a chaotic environment, I can only imagine if, if they are the good side of Capricorn, that it doesn't matter if everything is exploding all around you, they are going to stay calm and focused. And they're going to take one step at a time and move towards the outcome that is the most favorable. This is sort of a uh, loaded question, but uh, I can't really think of any way of getting to it other than asking, if this person were in over their head, would they be capable of realizing that? And what would they do? Well, I don't know that Capricorns ever recognize that they are in over their head with this many planets in capricorn i would imagine that this person would feel like no matter what happens they will figure a way out now that is either true 
or not, but you're asking me how they feel. So I feel that a person with this many planets in Capricorn would always think if they're on the right side of it, the good side, that they had things under control. If this person is just the dark side of Capricorn, which would mean they just, they've spiraled out of control and they are, it isn't possible for them to get back into the driver's seat. They're just gone. And usually these people will turn to alcohol or drugs or something to appease that feeling and sense of having no control. Okay. Capricorns have to have control. There has to be a level of control. It is what they survive and exist on. It's different than any other sign in the Zodiac. They must have control. Okay. Whether they are in charge of a lot of people, and normally if they are, they're really good at that. They are very good at executive positions. They're very good at any position of being in charge because they are going to be in control. They're like Spock. With mm -hmm. this many planets in Capricorn, you have two sides to Spock. You have Spock when he spirals and he's gone, right? He's just totally gone. Or you have Spock, which his normal self is in control. This person, if this person is spiraling out of control, uh, I would be very surprised. Okay. Uh, is there anything about this uh, chart that you haven't talked about already? Saturn and Uranus in Libra and Jupiter in Scorpio. Those three things uh, should offer some charm to this person and some reverence for beauty and beautiful things and even an ability to be uh seductive mm. and charming um having neptune and jupiter in scorpio also could make this person even poetic um capable of creating romantic illusion um and then that Pluto in Pisces, trining that, those two planets in Scorpio also add to that creative illusion, the ability of the illusion. I don't know if any of this makes any sense because it's always so hard when we don't have a birth time, but um, I, I just hope I'm making some sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there are uh, several things that are, are hitting here. Oh, good. Um. At this time, I would like to see if we can, are we able to take a look at what this uh, person's chart would intersect with on a particular day? Uh, we can try that. But again, this is going to be difficult because we don't have a birth time. But let's see what we can do. Let's see what happens. Okay. Uh, what day is it? Um, March 19th. 19th. Uh-huh. 
1836. 1836. Okay. Let's see what we have. Okay. So, on this particular day, we have a lot going on. Um, I'm looking currently at Uranus because Uranus <clears throat> in on this particular day is at two degrees Pisces, which is conjunct this person's natal Pluto. Um, okay, so having Uranus, transiting Uranus, conjunct by degree, your natal Pluto could mean very big change for you. Huge change for you. Um, let's see. Coming from the outside. Unexpected. But um, this is not this is not a, a, a fast transit. Okay, this is a slow transit, but it's a transit that you know, the closer it gets to your natal square, the more likely something uh, big is going to happen. Okay. So then we have transiting Pluto at 13 degrees Aries. Well, if Pluto is in Aries, period, there's going to be uh, Aries things, right? So there could be war, there could be battles, there could be... Um, a lot going on in the world period okay so with this situation at 13 degrees aries transiting pluto at 13 degrees aries it is squaring uh their sun their mercury uh and their venus and their mars by sun but by degree it's squaring the sun and mercury so and again, that is not a slow transit. That is a slow burn, right? Your quick things are going to come from Uranus. Um, let's see what else. Mars is at seven degrees. Transiting Mars is at seven degrees, literally conjunct by degree to this person's Pluto. Big change, huge change. Uh, the moon on this day was in Aries, conjunct Pluto. All right by degrees, within five degrees of that. Um, so there's a lot happening on, on this day and in this time. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of th Mars things, because it's these planets in Aries and then Mars conjuncting this person's natal Pluto. Um, big change. Could be death. Could be death around you could be uh just literal unexpected explosive things happening okay mm -hmm. um this person's uranus is uh 16 degrees libra all right the moon was uh at 17 degrees aries okay um so There's a lot. There's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this chart simply because I'm looking at where these things are falling in this makeshift chart that we've done. And in the makeshift chart that we've done, we have 
<laughs> we have Uranus and uh, Venus and Mars transiting this person's 12th house, which is very karmic. Okay. Plus the sun is there. If, if you know, by this chart, you see mm -hmm. what I'm looking at. Right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So then uh, Neptune is transiting this person's 11th house, which is illusion with groups of people. If we're going by this chart, which, you know, we don't know, but uh, very interesting. And transiting Pluto and the moon are in this person's first house. Venus and North Node, transiting Venus and North Node are in the second house, Chiron in the third, Jupiter in the fourth. So per this chart, which is based on, you know, just Aries rising, uh, this could be a very significant time for this person. I'm not saying this particular day, but this time could be anything. I mean, mm -hmm. anything goes because of the situation with uh, transiting Uranus uh, uh, conjuncting this person's Pluto. Does any of that make sense? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I think that... Uh, so is there anything else here that uh, stands out to you about this day, about this chart, about anything we've talked about? I mean, I could go through and, and make my best attempt to look at every single aspect here. Um, but like, do you see that this person's North Node is 14 degrees Aquarius and the transiting North Node is squaring that at 21 degrees Taurus? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, I mean. What, what, would the, what would that mean? Well, anytime you have a square or an opposition, uh, it, it there's energy and it is it could be conflict it could be you know conflict energy but um and does the taurus have anything the the significance of that is there we've talked about taurus before as being stubborn right. yes as being slow and plodding yes, yes. Uh, taurus so... wants to be taurus wants taurus wants control but not the same way a capricorn does Taurus is more about just literally being in control. Like, um, like, like an ox, they set their course and they go there and nothing is going to stop them. Where an Aquarius is more, you know, it's ruled by Uranus. So it's here and there and their thoughts are like lightning and everything is fast and their minds work really fast. And I'm not saying that a Taurus mind doesn't work really fast. It works just as fast. It just works differently. An Aquarian, you know, can have uh, 16 holograms going on and, and, and be very comfortable with all of these things happening at once, where a tourist would be much more uh, satisfied with looking at one thing at a time and making sure that each one of those things, that everything was done that needed to be done with those. So... Uh, it does kind of throw things out of whack. So this North Node in Aquarius being hit with this uh, transit in Taurus, uh, would this be some sort of internal conflict between the openness and this creativity? This is a conflict in his direction. 
He's trying to go. So his way. purpose, there is a conflict in his purpose. Uh-huh. Yes. And he is trying to go one way and the Taurus part is pushing to another yes. way. Creating conflict in that, in his, okay. in his ability to get to where he's trying to go in his direction. Okay. Uh, it could be as simple as life lessons, karmic lessons involved with getting to your direction, making you stronger to get to your direction, you know, things like that. But um, there is an awful lot, you know, going on in, in this particular, in the world, okay? In the world at this time, there's a mm-hmm. lot going on. Yeah. You know, uh, we have... Um, well, this is Uranus and Pisces. We have Uranus in, in Taurus right now. So we also have we have North Node in Taurus right now, I'm pretty sure. I have to go double check because I look at so many charts. I can't always remember where we are right now. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there's a lot. A lot is happening. Uh, you know. Uh, well, are you uh, ready for the summary of our findings? Yes. Okay. So, uh, the first thing you pointed out was uh, all the Aquarius would drive him towards humanitarian, technological, scientific direction. Uh, that he'd have a unique mind, uh, possibly have an interest in the supernatural. Uh, the Capricorn side of him would make him business-oriented. Uh, there are issues to overcome in business. Uh, there could be a possible psychic ability. There could be an interest in the supernatural or the occult. Uh, this person would be powerfully creative. Uh, there's something to overcome with women and mother early in life. Uh, he could be prone to alcoholism or addiction. Uh, he could be an entrepreneur. Uh, he could be an executive, someone in charge, uh, possibly in a corporate industrious uh, setting. Um, he's attracted to getting more information, could be an explorer, uh, not outspoken, not gregarious. Uh, you wouldn't know that he entered a room, but he would know every single person in that room. He could be arrogant, self-centered. He is not a gullible person. Uh, this person would be in charge. If he was in a military setting, he would most likely be an officer. Um, he, in that setting, in a military setting, he'd be uh, strictly reliant on facts. Um, he was not one to rush in in a blaze of glory. There's uh, methods uh, and organization to everything that he does. Uh, he would see things differently. He would just see the world differently. He would be cool under pressure. Uh, doesn't uh, recognize, he wouldn't recognize if he was in over his head, he would know that he would be able to figure a way out. Uh, he uh, has to have a level of control. Control is very important to him. Uh, he could be charming. Uh, there's a reverence for beautiful things. Uh, he could be poetic. He could uh, be able to provide romantic illusion. Then uh, later on, we looked at how this person's chart uh, specifically uh, interacted with what was all going on on March 19th, 1836. 
on this day, uh, for him, uh, it's been plotting for a while that there is a very big change, an unexpected change, something coming from the outside. Um, there is lots of conflict, war, battles in the world at this time. Uh, there is uh, the possibility of death and death of people around you. There is explosive things happening uh, on this date um, in his life. Uh, is there anything that I left out? No, that is that is about as close as I can get because it's it's still generalization, you know, because there's so many factors in what could be happening. And, you know, just in general, when I can't get spot on because I don't have a birth time to go by, uh, it makes things a little bit difficult. I mean, you know. For instance, if this person has all these planets in Capricorn, but then has Leo rising, if they had Leo rising, then maybe when they walk into a room, they do make sure that people know they're there. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? I don't. But uh, uh, normally, a person with this many planets in Capricorn with Moon and Virgo would not necessarily blaze into a room. Right. So... Are you ready to find out whose chart you've been reading? Yes. This is the astrological birth chart of Colonel James Fannin. <gasps> oh. Fannin was the commander of the Texian troops uh, in charge of the Presidio La Bahia. Uh, he was in charge of the troops during the battle for Goliad and the <gasps> Goliad Massacre. Oh, no. Oh, wow. March 19th, 1836 is the Battle of Coletto Creek. That is where he made the pivotal decision of that day that I'll go into in more detail as we do the summaries of his life. Oh, yes. <clears throat> I'm very interested in hearing this. So, uh, James Walker Fannin uh, was born to uh, Dr. Isham Fannin, and uh, his uh, mother, uh, her last name was Walker. They were not actually married, uh, so he was technically uh, a bastard at the time that he was born. Um, eventually, his maternal grandfather um, would raise him. Uh, they would raise him in, uh, at his plantation in Marion, Georgia. At the age of 15, uh, James Fannin entered West Point. He did so under the name James Fannin Walker, his, taking his mother's last name. He uh, was not the best student at West Point. Uh, he was frequently tardy and frequently absent. Uh, he did not uh, do particularly uh, well in his classes, and uh, he did not graduate. Uh, in November of 1821, he left West Point, and uh, he returned uh, to Georgia. Uh, he would live for a while in Columbus, Georgia. He would uh, marry uh, a woman named Minerva Fort, and uh, they had two daughters together. Uh, at this time, he would sometimes uh, serve in the uh, local militia, uh, but he uh, was also a, a local merchant, um, and uh, he was also a member of the Temperance Society in uh, Columbus, uh, Georgia, and uh, eventually served as a uh, justice, uh, as a judge in the community. 
1832, his dealings in business had taken him to the rather um, illegal uh, business of slave trading. Uh, this being uh, the before the Civil War in the U.S. South, um, the sale of human beings, African Americans, uh, was uh, legal. Uh, but the slave trading, the actual collection of slaves and making that your whole business, going from town to town, uh, collecting these slaves and selling them at auctions was not uh, legal. Uh, this was supposed to be done by the farmers, the plantation owners themselves, um, but he was uh, involved in that business. In 1834, as many uh, people from the U.S. South uh suffering from uh, uh, issues with the economy um, and finding a new life for themselves in Texas. Uh, this uh, territory, which was still a part of Mexico, uh, promised uh, uh, it was a land of opportunity. You could get uh, cheap land. Uh, it was just 12 and a half cents an acre. Um, you could have hundreds of acres with very little money. Um, this was something that uh, many people were attracted to. And uh, so uh, James Fannin uh, moved to Texas. Uh, he settled near the water, uh, near Velasco, and uh, started setting up a plantation there. Um, but this is uh, during the times where the tensions between uh, the central government in Mexico and the Texian settlers are coming to a fever pitch. Uh, in 1835, um, Stephen F. Austin was released from prison uh, for a crime that was never they never accused him of any crime. They just held him in prison for over a year and a half. Uh, all he wanted was for Texas to become a separate state within Mexico. And for that, uh, they locked him up. Um, he was released uh, in the summer of 1835 and immediately began preparations for a rebellion. Uh, the people in Texas were uh, upset at the uh, complete change in government in Mexico. Uh, they had come to Mexico uh, under uh, the belief in their constitution of 1824 that they would have a democratic republic, that it would be a federative republic, that there would be sovereign states and uh, levels of government. But Santa Ana... Uh, was elected to become president under that constitution and then decided that he didn't like it and that he wanted to be a dictator instead. Yes. And the people in Texas uh, were not very happy about that. And in 1835, uh, things really came to a boil, specifically on October 2nd of 1835 in the town of Gonzales. Um, the, uh, there were orders uh, from the uh, Perfecto de Cos saying that uh, the uh, cannons uh, that were held, or the one very small signal cannon held by the settlers in Gonzales, must be taken, uh, had to be taken back to the central city of San Antonio, and that these people in Gonzales should not have any arms to protect them from Comanche raids. On October 2nd of 1835, the settlers in Gonzales, uh, nearly 180 men, uh, assembled, uh, uh, assembled um, and flew a white flag with a black cannon that said, come and take it. And they fired into the Mexican forces, uh, forcing them uh, to retreat. Uh, that was the start of the Texas Revolution, and James Fannin was there on that day. 
Um, later on, uh, he continued serving in the Texas Army. He served in the Battle of Concepcion, which happened uh, at the uh, Mission Concepcion. Uh, during this battle, uh, there are many stories that come from it. Uh, one of them is that the Mexicans had a uh, artillery piece. They had a cannon. And in order to fire the cannon, you'd have to have someone with a torch or a touch point to go and actually put the fire, and which ignited the gunpowder, in the cannon. Uh, the Texas sharpshooters were so good that as the uh, person uh, going to touch the cannon off was approaching the cannon, they would shoot him. And they shot that guy, and then another man would come and pick up the torch to fire the cannon, and they shot him too. And then the third person came up, and they shot that guy too. So yeah. the cannon did not go off, and that gave the Texans enough time to get to the cannon and uh, uh, capture or kill the people who were um, about to fire the cannon. Um, the Mexicans, uh, the, the, the soldiers that were there, uh, it was a, a superior force. There were more people, but the Texans were able to capture uh, Concepcion anyway and force them to retreat into San Antonio. And uh, many of the Texians saw this, and James Fannin saw this, that these uh, soldiers, these Mexican soldiers, uh, were not courageous. They were not brave, mm -hmm. that uh, the, they would not be able, that they weren't, that they, it was easy. It was going to be easy to take mm -hmm. Texas um, and to make it independent. Um, and that was a mindset that he continued on with uh, well after it had been proven wrong yeah. that uh, the Mexican soldiers were very brave and very yes. courageous and uh, that it was not a matter of nationality. It was a matter of what their orders had been, which mm -hmm. caused them uh, to retreat back uh, to San Antonio. Um, but he uh, ha he enjoyed this victory and uh, I believe played a part in the subsequent siege of uh, Bejar, which is what San Antonio was also called at the time, which mm -hmm. concluded in December with um, the Mexican soldiers leaving uh, and retreating back to Mexico um, with their tail between their legs. That the this rough and tumble group of Texians had taken um, the most uh, important city in Texas uh, from not just any Mexican general, but Perfecto de Cos, who was Santa Ana's brother-in-law. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, going in, we're not going to cover the entire Texas Revolution here because I have a feeling that these uh, uh, stories will be told in later episodes. Um, but Santa Ana eventually came back. He mustered a, a, a garrison of thousands of troops, uh, uh, the nearly 5,000 uh, to come up from Mexico into Texas to teach the Texians a lesson. Um, in February, they arrived in San Antonio again in February of 1836. Um, they surrounded a small, uh, a, a failed mission uh, called uh, San Antonio de Valero, also known as the Alamo. Uh, there were a uh, little more than a hundred people there at the time under the command of uh, William Barrett Travis. Um, and Travis wrote to all of the other men uh, in Texas, all of the people leading armies in Texas, pleading for men to come. Um, by this time, uh, Fannin had uh, left the army and he had come back and he was made in charge of uh, the uh, uh, fort that was in Goliad. Uh, mm -hmm. they, had, uh, they had named it Fort Defiance. Its original name was Presidio La Bahia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he was in charge of a garrison of round, uh, uh, th over 300, nearly 400 people there. Uh, the Alamo had less than 100 
Uh, Travis wrote to Fanon asking, please, can you send your men over to the Alamo? Give us the numbers that we need. Uh, and Fanon replied that he would not, um, that Fort Defiance was a much better fort. It was an actual fort. The Alamo was not a fort. It was a failed mission um, that, in fact, maybe you should leave San Antonio and come to us, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that that would be better. This is more defensible. Um, but Travis did not. And eventually he did get more men. He got nearly 180 um, and Santa Ana surrounded the Alamo th- for 13 days, issued them a proclamation of no quarter, that there would be no prisoners taken. And on March 6 of 1836, um, the Battle of the Alamo occurred, and uh, all of the 180 defenders of the Alamo were killed. Uh, their bodies were burned on a funeral pyre so that they could not have a Christian burial. Uh, the news of the fall of the Alamo and the brutal treatment of the uh, people there uh, just uh, ran across Texas, and people were scared for their very lives. Um, Sam Houston uh, was recently remade the uh, commander of the Texas troops. He was stationed in Gonzales with a relief force of around 300. Um now, uh, uh, Fannin was at Goliad, their greatest fort, and he uh, was given, uh, at first, orders from Sam Houston to go to the Alamo. Then he found that the Al- there was no Alamo there, so he got orders from Sam Houston on March 14th saying uh, to leave Goliad, leave the fort, mm-hmm. uh, go to Victoria, uh, uh, retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fannin didn't know uh, quite... What, what what he wanted to do with this. He should have probably just followed the orders and left that day, but yes. instead he decided, oh, I remember how the Mexican troops were back in October of last year. They're not going to be that hard, um, so we will uh, uh, we'll retreat in our own time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he waited five days. He waited until March 19th of 1836. During this time, another contingent of Mexican troops was coming up from South uh, of the border. They had taken Matamoros, and then they were coming up um, uh, the coastal bend up to uh, the Presidio La Bahia. Um, they were commanded by General Urea. Uh, he had heard that the troops were coming up, but he wasn't exactly sure where they were, so he sent a, a small grouping of troops to go down to Refurio, uh, which is uh, between uh, Goliad and Corpus Christi. If uh, any of our international viewers know anything about what I'm talking about here. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, he sent these troops and they didn't come back. Uh, because they were killed. Uh, but he didn't know that, so he sent another grouping of troops to Refurio, and they were also killed. Oh, and they, he didn't hear back from any of them, and at this point, the Mexican troops are coming closer and closer, and uh, uh, Fannin is still waiting days and days, and then on March 19th, he decides, okay, we will leave, we'll go to Victoria. Victoria was a day's march away. It was 25 miles or less. Um, but that would, you know, the, the, the Mexican troops would come to to the fort, there'd be nothing there. It would buy them time. So he leaves on March 19th of 1836, um, and they are making their way. They should be there before midnight. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, it is the middle of the day. They've gotten halfway there, and he decides, let us break. Um, let's uh, have a midday meal. Uh, let's make sure that the oxen uh, are, are fed, make sure that they're grazing. Um, the, he had 
purposely made sure that the cannons were not left at the fort, so he brought these heavy cannons with him, which made the journey much slower. And and on top of that, he was using even slower oxen to pull these cannons. Um, and instead of stopping at a defensive area, um, they were very close to Coletto Creek. They could have hidden in the brush to have their meal, or maybe just not stopped at all. Um, instead, he decided to be right in the wide open prairie around Coletto Creek. Mm. Uh, they decide to have their midday meal, and the men are getting uh, upset with Fannin over mm. all of this, over the fact that he did not go to the Alamo, over the fact that he waited to leave Goli. Um, over the fact that now they are stopping when they know that the Mexican troops are so close to them to have a midday meal. Mm-hmm. And uh, they bring this up to Fanning and he poo-poos them. Uh, don't worry about this. I remember how they were back in Concepcion. The, the, they're not going to attack. We're 400 men. Uh, mm-hmm. Nothing will happen to us. And while they're eating, they see this cloud behind them. And uh, the cloud is moving fast. Mm-hmm. And it's moving towards them. And it's closer and closer, and then they realize that it is cavalry, that it is the cloud of dust that comes from the horses running as fast as they can towards their position. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's now no time. There's no time to make it to run to any safe defensive position. So they are in the middle of a prairie, and they decide to to form a defensive square. Mm-hmm. Um, all that is between them and the oncoming Mexican troops is whatever boxes and carts and dead animals that they can put in between them. Uh, They form a square, and quickly the 80 Mexican uh, cavalry surround uh, the square, and the fighting begins. And the Texans are holding their own. They're uh, fighting throughout the day, um, and it's 400 against 80. So uh, it's uh, somewhat, uh, the Texans are somewhat successful. Now, uh, eventually the infantry arrives, and so does General Urea. Um, so a small grouping of the Mexican troops come, including the sharpshooters. And Urea, uh, while he did not go to West Point, if he had, he probably would have graduated, which Fannin did not. Uh, Urea directs the sharpshooters to uh, first go after the draft animals, make sure that they are immobile. Uh, so uh, shoot the oxen and the mules and anything that uh, allows them uh, to move. Then shoot anyone who uh, is in the artillery uh, so that they cannot fire these cans at us. And lastly, shoot the officers. So at this time, uh, Fannin gets a 75 caliber slug in his thigh. Um, there are about 60 uh, Texas casualties that are either uh, injured or dead. Um, but uh, they are still there. Uh, they have not been taken that day. Uh, at that night, um, they meet and they decide what they're going to do. There's still around 300 of them that are able-bodied. Are they going to leave? Are they going to uh, uh, try and slip through the Mexican lines, try and get to a defensible position around the creek, or just keep running? Um, before the Mexicans wake up the next day or find out what's going on, they could be uh, have a good head start. But that would mean that they would have to leave the injured behind to a most certain death. They decide not to do that. Um, They stay uh, in their perimeter. Over the night, uh, more Mexican troops come, bringing their uh, numbers to double what the Texians have. And the artillery arrives. There are howitzer cannons. Uh, General Urea decides to uh, what what is a somewhat uh, honorable move. He fires a warning shot 
He has the howitzer cannon. He stuffs it with a chain, and he shoots the chain over, and it hovers above their heads and then lands uh, right in the center of the uh, Texian defense. This is to show them, we have your range. The next shot will be an explosive artillery round. Uh, This is over. So uh, Colonel Fannin uh, sues uh, for uh, terms. Uh, He goes under the white flag of truce. He goes to General Urea. General Urea, to his credit, says that uh, he will give them the best terms possible. Now, he is under direct orders of the dictator, Santa Ana, to give them no terms, to have them be all killed on the spot. But Urea says that he will do the best that he can to get the troops, the the Texians, to leave Texas and never come back, to go home to their families. Fannin goes back to his troops and says that those are the terms, that they will be taken home to their families. And so they surrender. And they are in uh, the Mexican, uh, the Mexican troops take them back to the very fort that they were defending just a few days ago. Um, but it is now in Mexican hands, and uh, they are prisoners in that fort. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are held in the chapel of uh, the Presidio for seven days. During this time, Urea leaves. He has a war to uh, to conclude. He now that he's captured one of the largest contingents of rebels, he can go on and continue fighting the war. He leaves the um, Presidio La Bahia uh, under the command of Portillo. Uh, Portillo has strict orders from Urea saying, do not kill these men. These are prisoners of war. Uh, uh, one of the stories says that uh, uh, Fannin actually leaves the fort to try and find ships that will take them home and then comes back to the fort. Um, Portillo then receives a message from Santa Ana saying, why do you have prisoners? I said that there will be no prisoners. You need to kill them all now. Mm-hmm. He receives another order that same day from Urea saying, do not kill the prisoners. Portillo oh. writes a letter to Santa Ana saying, my superior officer says that I should not kill these uh, men. And he gets a letter back from Santa Ana saying, I am Generalissimo Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. I am the leader uh, of of the of of Mexico. You need to do what I tell you to do. Mm-hmm. And so, on the uh, morning of March twenty seventh, um, eighteen thirty six, it was Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, able bodied uh, Texians uh, were taken out in three columns on three mm-hmm. different roads, all being told that they're going home. Mm. That they're going to see their families. Mm. They go on these three different roads. They get less than a mile outside of uh, Goliad and uh, the Mexican troops turn and fire into them. Mm. Uh, Some stories say that they are less than three feet away from the Texians uh, when Mm. this first volley is shot. Um, These men, uh, they were not all killed in the first volley. Some of them Mm. were injured, and they fell down, and then they had their dead compatriots fall on top of them. Uh, who those who were not killed in the first volley, uh, the uh, civilians that were around and the other Mexican troops started to go through and take the boots and clothes and oh. personal items off of these men. And these the ones who were underneath could feel them doing this and, mm-hmm. and found themselves com- with just their underwear on um, when they woke up or, or when they were when all the Mexicans had left at that time. Um 
There are stories of some of them who were not killed in the first volleys, just started running, running for Mm. their very lives. There is one man who had been playing cards with the Mexican troops uh, for the whole last week and had won quite a bit of money off of them. Uh, So much money that he was weighed down with the silver pesos that he had in his pockets. He kept running and some of these coins started to fall out of his pockets and the Mexican troops stopped and picked up these coins. And then they would catch up to him. And every time they started to catch up, he would just reach in his pockets and throw coins behind him as the Mexican troops would stop and pick up these coins. And that was how he escaped. Um, Out of the nearly 370, 380 troops that were taken out, um, only 28 survived. Uh, Those 28, many of them were saved by uh, a woman who we call the Angel of Goliad. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a... uh, a, Mexican a woman who was going was risking life and limb to save uh, uh, these men uh, to hide them to carry them off to safety so that they were not killed um, by the Mexican troops. Yes. While this is all happening in Goliad, there are still wounded. Uh, so the sixty wounded Texians are there. They hear the shots. They are then killed themselves one by mm-hmm. one. And James Fannin was the last one. He heard all of this. He heard all of his men die. He was then taken out to be executed. They sat him down in a chair because he was not able to stand because of the pain in his thigh. They sat him in a chair and he had three requests. He asked that his belongings be taken back to his wife and his two daughters. Mm -hmm. He asked that he be shot in the chest and not in the face. And he asked to be given a Christian burial. The Mexican troops promptly took his belongings and they pocketed them themselves. They shot him in the face and then they burned him on a funeral pyre, denying him a Christian funeral, just as all of the others. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the Goliad massacre is taught to anyone outside of Texas, if it is even brought up at all. The Alamo is something that is known worldwide. We've made movies about it. It has captured the imaginations of people who have never and may never come to Texas. Um, the gallantry, the, the heroism of the men knowing that they would have certain death um, and, and fighting anyway is something that uh, many people around the world find admirable. The story of Goliad, uh, there's something there that... While it may not be as world-renowned, it was almost more prophetic to the people in 1836 that uh, Fanon had believed that he had entered terms of peace, um, that these men would be taken back home, and that they were told that they were going home when they were executed was something so perfidious um, in in the Texan mind that it, it enraged the people. And we are not going to cover everything that happens afterwards. But at the climactic battle in April of 1836, um, the Texian troops were so filled with rage as they uh, shouted as they entered the Mexican camp, remember the Alamo, remember Goliad. Yes. Uh, So 
As we have talked about many times uh, in this show, we are very proud Texans. We are very proud of our Texan heritage. We are very proud of the people uh, who fought uh, for the freedom of Texans back in 1836. And uh, this being the anniversary, we're at 186, the 186th anniversary. Um, This show will be coming out 186 years, uh, almost to the day of the Goliad Massacre. Um, and so I want to, uh, see what, what the stars said about Fanon and, uh, his decision making and, uh, what, what led to that, uh, horrible tragedy. Uh, I have one quote pulled up by one of Fanon's men, uh, that I think fits into what we've talked about here, um, during our, uh, uh discussion. Um, Fanon, uh, he came from this tradition of West Point. He came from this tradition of order. He did not like uh, the chaos. He did not like the revelry. He did not like the uh, the pirates and bandits that were here in Texas. Um, and uh, during the concluding days uh, that he had in Goliad, he continuously wrote to the Texas government to relieve him of this command, to find someone else who can uh, uh, get control over these rowdy Texans. Uh, at one point, uh, a private, uh, J.G. Ferguson, uh, wrote uh, to his brother saying, I'm sorry to say that the majority of the soldiers don't like Fannin. For what cause, I don't know, whether it is because they think he has not the interests of the country at heart, or that he wishes to become great without taking the proper steps to attain greatness. Uh, he was, uh, the, the, the privates there, the, the men in the militia saw him as stodgy, saw him as, uh, uh, wanting order over everything else. And, uh, that may have been his downfall, that, uh, he was, if someone had given him orders, but then if he had just followed the orders that he was given, it is possible that those, uh, men may not have died there, that, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, San Jacinto army uh, led by Sam Houston could have been even greater, but that is uh, all was not to be. Um, And so Fanon uh, was made a martyr uh, and and his uh, sacrifice is remembered by the people of Texas to this very day. Yes. Yes. Goliad was the worst. When we think of Texas history and we think of the revolution and we can you know ponder all the sides and everything that goes on when we come down to the humanity of something it doesn't matter what battle we're talking about it doesn't matter you know who we're speaking of when you literally you know do something so heinous and um you know it it, it, it it's not forgotten and I know that when people talk about the Texas Revolution, they talk about Texas, they talk about the Alamo. I know that people come from all over the world to see the Alamo and the story of the Alamo and that the line was drawn in the sand. They fought to the death knowing they were all going to die. Um, in this situation, there's something about having the opportunity to fight to the death knowing you're going to die as opposed to being told something completely different and then just being you know shot down and killed in such a a terrible way there's a lot to be said for that but in this chart 
not knowing what uh, Fanon's rising sign is. I understand his behavior completely because with all of that Capricorn and him working from his logical perspective, his logical perspective, and going with the idea of what he logically thinks is going to happen and trying to make the best uh, decisions for everyone. And also knowing now that the other side of that is that he didn't want to be there and that he was stodgy and orderly, which that's someone with this much Capricorn would be considered. Um, it, it all makes a lot of sense. And the cruelty uh, that was bestowed on him and the cruelty that, that was bestowed on all of these men fueled the fire that probably got the Texians the win, mm -hmm. you know, in the end. Had this not have happened, had this sacrifice of people not have happened, they may not have ended up in the same scenario. Their fury, literal fury, at what had happened is what drove them. And yes, it's true. Fannin probably should have followed orders. He probably should have done what Houston said. Houston knew what he was doing. And uh, Fannin was just really sure of his own logic and made his own decision. So the whole thing is very sad. War in general is sad. Mm -hmm. The fact that people have to go through these different things because of the inhumanity of man is sad. Um, but the stories are things that we should remember and not repeat. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem to be the way things go with man's inhumanity to man. Well, um, I think on our uh, on our scale of right on the money to way out in outer space, this one is a little bit in the middle. It's closer to uh, right on the money. I'm sure this guy had a lot of Capricorn in him. Um, I think that a lot of these things make sense. The the attention to order, uh, the dislike of chaos, um, the uh, even the the coolness under pressure. They talk about his bravery uh, facing all of this. That. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he may have been misguided and he may have been too sure of himself, but when it came down for him to meet his fate, he was very brave and very stoic and very cool, um, under pressure. Um, I think that there, there's a lot here that, that is, um, who Fanon was. Yes. Yes. All of these people on both sides were very brave. All of these people were following orders of men who may not have been the best caliber. Um, that's, you know, this is where we are. So this, this makes me sad. <laughs> the whole story of, Go of Goliath always makes me sad because it's so unfair and wrong. But this was, uh, a very good choice at this time, Chandler, and I'm, uh, I'm glad to have done this chart, and it, it does make sense to me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I uh, again, I know that our, our audience is all over the country, all over the world, all over everywhere with different uh, political persuasions, and I, I love that. Um, I just, uh, it, it's important for us uh, to, right now, a lot of the Texas historians call this the high holy days of, <laughs> of Texas history from from the Alamo to Goliad to San Jacinto in April, um, and that uh, as proud Texans, it's important uh, for us to to share that story with whoever we can about why why we are special, why Texas is such a great place, and and part of that is certainly in in credit to uh, uh, our heroes like James Fannin. Yes, I agree. Very good choice, Chandler. Very good choice for. Uh, all of this time between February to April. Very nice. Well, uh, that concludes this episode of History in Retrograde. I'd like to uh, thank you so much uh, for listening. Uh, if you'd like to uh, support the show, we are available on socials. Those links are all included in the description. Uh, we also have a link to our PayPal account. If you're feeling extra generous, every little bit um, helps us to produce a better quality show for you. Um, also, uh, we would like to, uh, thank you, uh, all, uh, so very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed it, uh, if you're on Spotify or on Apple podcasts, and if you could, uh, rate us, uh, you know, this is a podcast all about stars. So if you could give us those five stars, we'd very much appreciate it. Uh, give us a review if you can share it. Uh, word of mouth is also a great way. Tell your friends about us. And, uh, Mom, do you have uh, anything to add here? Hi, just want to say thank you, and we love you all. We love you individually, and we love you as a group. Many of you have contacted us and let us know how you feel, and we love it. Please let us know. We look forward to hearing from you all the time. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you so much, and uh, as always, in conclusion, as long as your houses are in order and the stars are aligned, everything will be just fine. Everything will be just fine. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 